What's up, summer lovers? Welcome to the Jesus Movies Podcast, where we search movies for lines, scenes, characters, and themes that trace truth in the gospel. I'm Kevin Carlock. I'm here with my fellow single friend, Graham Hooten, and our hope is that you'll join us on the great journey of storytelling by asking thoughtful questions about why certain movies and moments resonate or don't resonate, and what they might say about the movie, about you, and perhaps about humanity as a whole. Today we're talking about The Notebook, and Graham, my one question for you is, can summer love last? Well, if Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams have anything to say about this, the answer is 100% yes. I, I know you and I were talking, we love the idea of summer romances. It's the uh, centerpiece of a lot of films. I don't know, Grease came to mind for me. Uh, there's a whole like summer loving song. Um, but yeah, I think that's the fundamental question that the movie is trying to ask is when we have these mountaintop experiences of love and romance, is it possible that... Uh, when we leave that place that kind of produces that high, could those things actually be real? Um, and I think in the notebook, they very much are. I agree. So Greece for you, Titanic for me, I think the story of the elderly couple being that couple on the outside, giving us the framework, and then the bulk of the story being on the inside with the younger version kind of told through flashback. We have the rich girl choosing between the exciting poor boy and then the boring rich guy who's the right choice and then you know the mom is pressuring the daughter into making the choice that has seemingly more financial stability and then the girl feels sort of trapped and dead inside but we have the star-crossed lovers and it's like a fling but will it last you know like we had this great experience on the ship like are we really supposed to believe that that's going to carry off the ship kind of same thing here with the summer uh will summer love last this nicholas sparks quote from the book I think in a lot of ways is the vocal piece of the movie. Summer romances end for all kinds of reasons, but when all is said and done, they have one thing in common. They're shooting stars, a spectacular moment of light in the heavens, a fleeting glimpse of eternity, and in a flash they're gone. What do you think about that? What comes to mind? I love that. <laughs> I mean, it seems a little bit melodramatic, but the, the fleeting glimpse at eternity, and I know we're going to dive a little bit more into um, kind of the biblical connotations of what it looks like to have uh, love being a glimpse into eternity, but I don't know. I like it. I think it's beautiful, and uh, I think the cool thing about shooting stars, and I've learned this, uh, I think, from my time taking kids to summer camp, is uh, they're a lot, actually a lot more common than we think. We just uh, don't spend a lot of time taking uh, our time to look up and just stare at the stars. So, uh, dare I say, love is a little bit more common than we think. We're just uh, looking so hard for it, and uh, maybe all the wrong places. Hmm, that's going to tie into my Lazarus nicely. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts because this was your first time ever watching <laughs> yeah. this movie. I'm really big on like the first time you watch something is a great experience. It's a big deal. I want to hear from you. I think like I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, a big Star Wars fan, a big Harry Potter fan. And sometimes when that comes up in conversation with people, they're sort of like, oh, you know, don't judge me. I've never seen Star Wars. But like, in my mind, that's like the ideal place to, I'm like, oh my gosh, I would kill to be you, to be able to have that first experience. Like, I don't know. There's this weird thing in our culture where it's like, people feel like, you know, lesser than if they haven't bought in. But in my mind, it's like mm -hmm. super cool. Yeah. Maybe that's a tangent, but all I'm trying to say here is I would love to hear your thoughts on The Notebook. The Notebook's actually a lot more pure of a movie than I thought it was going to be. I think a really good representation of what genuine love and romance and pursuit looks like um and so i uh fell in love fell in love a little bit with rachel mcadams i won't lie through this film uh big fan big fan um 
And so, yeah, I think it was a really good experience. Um, I think there were some laugh out loud moments for me, but I think also some teary eyed moments as you got to see like how genuine and faithful uh, Noah's love for Allie and, and vice versa really was. So what specifically made Allie electric for you? Just seeing like her passion, how Noah kind of unlocks her passion for life. I love that scene when he's coming out of the mill uh, after they recently started dating and she like runs and literally jumps into his arms. And, yeah. Um, they're both feisty. Like they're not, I think one of the things I like is that they might very much like fight with each other. And Noah has this line where he says, uh, I'm not afraid to hurt your feelings. And I think we want to experience and be a part of that sort of impassioned love. And uh, we like seeing that on the big screen because it's like, oh man, I would never, or the person pursuing me would never. But yet in this story, we get to see somebody who actually lives that out. Anything you didn't like? I think the final scene and wherein they die together is great, but at the same time feels like, okay, do we really like, this feels like two cherries on top, not just one. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like it a little was a little bit over idealized and I would have taken out that last scene, but um, for the most part, I, you know, and there's, and some, in some ways, uh, both characters before they end up together, get out of seemingly impossible situations, very unscathed, like with Noah and, uh, the widow that he's been like living with like she kind of leaves in a very understanding way and Lon gets absolutely screwed in this movie and like just kind of leaves without a fight I don't know remind me of Sweet Home Alabama uh, Patrick Dempsey's character in that movie just like getting absolutely shafted but uh, not really uh, I don't know causing any like rift because of that so I would say that was like a little bit wild but uh, other than that you know I would, I would give it I'll give it two thumbs up as far as the two cherries on top, did the story within the story work for you, or would you rather have just had, you know, young Noah, young Allie, Gosling, and McAdams the whole time? I mean, I think the elderly couple is what makes this movie so memorable. To be able to go from a 30,000 foot perspective, bird's eye view, and see the consistency of uh, Noah's pursuit of Allie and being able to. Uh, see like how it is eternal in a way like you get the short glimpse of the summer romance and then seven years later but to see the long-term perspective on uh, how faithful he's been I think adds definitely a layer of depth to the film you wouldn't have otherwise so uh, I'm definitely in I'm for keeping that in what about you uh, I don't know if I have a hard for or against, but I'm definitely less into it than you are. I think if I'm being honest with myself, I'm much more interested in the main storyline of young Noah and young Allie. Maybe they just spent too much time in the outer shell story, or maybe the voiceover I just think is really lazy and kind of takes me out of the movie. It seems like fundamentally bad storytelling, the way they just sort of like narrate over the top of everything. I think that that's a, kind of a cheap trick and pulls us away from show don't tell uh basic kind of approaches to storytelling or at least visual medium storytelling and uh when i think about titanic which again i think it's its most clear parallel of a movie to me i find myself much more interested in the leonardo dicaprio kate winslet parts of the story than you know old old grandmother rose uh in the kind of pursuit of the diamond It, it just kind of feels like an excuse for james cameron to go shoot a bunch of stuff on the ocean floor and like ground his story and like the deep sea navigation I, I just don't know like how organic to the story it feels to me it also obviously really bloats it 
Well, shall we hit some awards? Let's Why do don't it. you give me your Lazarus Award for the most high-key gospel moment in this movie? My Lazarus Award is the final scene, the do you believe our love can make miracles scene. Noah and Allie here, I, I see this as Noah being Jesus and Allie being us. I got a lot of verses I'd like to walk through. He says to Allie, hi, sweetheart. Hi, sweetheart. I pulled Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have committed my faithfulness to you. Um, I think in this scene, we get to see that Noah has never stopped loving Allie, that he is in relentless pursuit of her, um, and that he has like a special name for her, that he uh, sets her apart and chooses her and cares for her. The very act of him showing up is a demonstration of his love uh, and his consistency. She says, I was afraid you'd never come back to me. I'm sorry I haven't been able to be here to read to you. I didn't know what to do. Was afraid you are never coming back. I'll always come back. Deuteronomy 31.8, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Um, I think we have this idea that when we have these mountaintop experiences with God, and maybe it's even a summer fling of sorts, like it's a summer camp or a mission trip or this mountaintop sort of liminal experience where we encounter the love of the Lord that um, maybe that isn't real and maybe um, the God that I experienced there is not really the God I can experience down the mountain. Uh, and she says, I was afraid you'd never come back for me, yet uh, Noah says, I will always come back. Um, I'm always going to be with you. Reminds me of what Jesus says to his disciples following the Great Commission in Matthew 28, uh, teaching them to like go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe that all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, Jesus closing the Great Commission uh, with the truth that he is always going to be with him. Uh, he's always going to be walking alongside him. It is a commitment. It is not a three-year uh, hey, let's do ministry kind of fling. Like this is a consistent lifelong walk that uh, bridges into eternity um, when the disciples pass on. Um, in the final line, you know, before they die, uh, Noah says to Allie, I'll be seeing you. I'll be seeing you. So the movie almost leads us to believe that one day Noah and Allie, the ones, the young ones that we saw fall in love, will again, like together commune uh, and be like living their fullest lives uh, in the presence of one another. And so the verse I pulled here, Revelation uh, 22, two, 2 through 4, this is uh, the Lord promising uh, for the restoration of Israel and getting to be uh, in community face-to-face -face with those whom he is called. He says, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Meaning that like one day as believers, we actually get to be face to face with the God who created us. Uh, the ultimate love story that spans the entire uh, creation of the world and ends in God's full redemption and restoration uh, of paradise um, in New Jerusalem and heaven on earth. Like we get to be in community and see our God face to face. Um, and I think basically this this entire scene at its core encapsulates um well, Psalm 23, 6, which I love. It says, Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Um, Noah continues to pursue Allie when she has dementia, when she forgets who she is, when she forgets who he is, when she forgets that the love um, that they had was real, 
there's this relentless pursuit uh, where Noah's not going to stop until he literally dies. He's actually not going to stop until he and Allie uh, are once again face-to-face, and we get to see that come to completion at the end of this movie, and uh, that's why that's my Lazarus Award. Yeah, I like the Revelation tie-in for sort of uh, heaven being maybe more about a person than a place. Mm. I was surprised because it was the very moment that you mentioned in sort of our introductory comments about how it was the double cherry that you didn't need and yet here we are with the Lazarus Award. Right, yeah. And, I, you know, I think the end scene is a little bit cheesy, if I'm being honest. Like, I don't feel like we necessarily needed the scene um, because Noah's perceived of Allie, even at the old age, is uh, very much demonstrated throughout this film as, again, shown, not told, and, and here is more of a tell scene. Um, but I think it gives us the opportunity to see Noah and Allie enter into the next life with one another. What do you got for your Lazarus Award, Kev? I feel like you picked maybe a little bit more so with your head, like this is kind of a high-key gospel moment because it's explicitly sort of how God relates to us. I picked a little bit more with my heart, like where my heart is really leaping out of my chest as far as like, oh, that's the gospel, even if it's seemingly less implicitly connected. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm going with the classic I wrote you every day scene. So here's the context that older Noah on the Outer Shell story gives us about the letters. Noah was desperate. He wrote to Allie that he was sorry and stupid for breaking up with her. He wrote to tell her that he still loved her and he wanted to see her, and that if she would write back, he would come to wherever she was. He wrote one letter a day for a year, 365 letters, but they all went unanswered. Hey, Fred! Nothing? Sorry. Thank you. Finally, after a year of silence, he decided to put it all behind him and start a new life. So he wrote a farewell letter, and he and Finn packed their bags and headed for Atlanta. But Allie's mom hides the letters from Allie, and so here's where we end up. Why didn't you write me? Why? It wasn't over for me. I waited for you for seven years. I wrote you 365 letters. I wrote you every day for a year. You wrote me? Yes. It wasn't over. It still isn't over. And so with the scene with the letters here, my question is, how much would you have to love someone to write them a letter every day for a year? Yeah, well, I you know the parallel I always think of is uh, the first movie we did on this podcast, Harry Potter and the Letters from Hogwarts, that just keep pouring in. Yes, I was actually going to ask you if this reminded you of any movies, but you have you beat me to the punch. I think this is that exact idea. And if you remember, we talked about Irresistible Grace and how mm-hmm. God's will is undefeated. Imagine someone writing you a letter every single day of your life, but beyond that, imagine it every single day, a hundred thousand years before you were born, all the way up into your birth writing about how they could not wait for you to be born or to get to know you. That's the character of God, and that's his love for you and for me to each and every one of his people. Furthermore, you know, God's word itself is a love letter. Let's go to Ezekiel 3 for this. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 11. And he said to me, Son of man, God speaking to Ezekiel, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with the scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. 
pause there. Graham, what are your thoughts on that? That's kind of a bizarre series of verses. I don't know. I think it's a good picture of how like God's word in and of itself is so sweet and satisfying to us. Um, and we kind of get the completion of that when Jesus comes and says, like, I am the bread of life. Come to me and eat, and you will never be hungry. Come to me and drink, and you will never be thirsty. Like, Jesus is the word became flesh, John 1.14. And so, um, like, Jesus is the fulfillment of those scriptures that satisfy our hunger and thirst for something deeper and something more. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I don't really know, but I, I like the image of sort of, like, scripture as nourishment, like the scroll as food. At the very least, I don't know what else to make of that. But then this passage kind of pivots, and God's going to basically tell Ezekiel, like, hey, I'm going to commission you to go prophesy to the Israelites to tell them about me, to reveal truth about myself to them. You're going to be my mouthpiece to them. And he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not sent to a people of foreign speech and a hard language, but to the house of Israel, not to many peoples of foreign speech and a hard language, whose words you cannot understand. Surely if I sent you to such, they would listen to you. But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they're not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Go to the exiles to your people and speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And so we see some of that set up in Ezekiel 3 that gives us this kind of romantic love imagery between God and Israel in chapter 16. This is picking up at verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. This is God speaking to Israel. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk, and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed upon you, declares the Lord. And so that is a long, I mean, just over and over and over and over, this embroider, this piece of jewelry, like God is very, you know, seemingly romantic towards his people here. And we sort of see how a lot of God's word is very affectionate and a love letter to his people. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, I actually had never read that passage before. And I don't know, it, again, it's very much uh, kind of aligns with this bride, bridegroom, like Jesus, like God in the church and and Jesus preparing like the church for communion with him. So yeah, I, I love that. And it's beautiful. Yeah. So that's part of it is, you know, just as Noah's writing these love letters to Allie, God is, is writing these love letters to Israel, to us. And now turning to affection for his word, kind of being like a love letter, like cherishing this love letter. Psalm 119 is really famous for this. Picking up at verse nine, how can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it according to your word? With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So you hear the psalmist's deep affection for God's word and his commandments and the things that have been expressed from God there. And now... I want to talk about how God's word wins, like the love letters. 
uh, that's the revelation that ultimately triggers Allie's, this is my guy, you know. God's word does the same thing. This is Isaiah 55 verse 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Kind of that same thing as the Hogwarts letter. Like it's gonna do its job. Those letters are gonna get Harry to school. Noah's letters in the gospel fuller sense, they do their job. The Bible is undefeated. Um, and so we see that God's word wins. And then lastly, this is really kind of where it takes an abstract turn. Jesus is the word, right? John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. And so very much echoing Genesis 1.1, like here at the start of the gospels, Jesus is the word. And there's this really interesting history behind, uh, or at least history of discussion about what does it mean that Jesus is the word? The Greek word there, logos for word, is mm -hmm. like heavily contested. And there's this large Greek philosophical context into which John writes that word and is making some big claims about who Jesus is. And I'm not sure that might be above my pay grade as far as sort of like how the Greek breaks down and what that meant historically at the time. But anyways, Jesus is the word, right? And like when we want to know who God is, our best insight into that is the life and person of Jesus. And so Jesus says that the Bible is actually all about him. He says this after he resurrects when he appears on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He's talking to his disciples here. This is verse 44. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so the idea is like the law, the prophets, the writings, Everything in the Hebrew Bible, it's all about me, guys. Like, I am that. That's, you know, like, I am fully God. I am the same as the God of Israel, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of what I see here. His word is a love letter. There's affection for his word. His word wins. Jesus is the word. And then Jesus says the word is all about him. And so all of this is kind of serving us to uh, say God has written more love letters to us than we can count. Uh, and, you know, we can start by buying all 66 of them compiled and sold at your local bookstore for the price of half of a tank of gas. <laughs> and so I think the the curious question for me here is, in what ways am I not getting the letters? Uh, is there someone that's withholding them, like Allie's mom? Is that why I'm not reading these letters from God to me? Or am I distracted? Like you said earlier, are they right in front of me and I'm just missing it? Or... Am I withholding them from myself? Are there? Do I know that they're there, but I'm refusing to read them? Or am I reading them, but refusing to believe that they're true? Maybe because I'm too much of the, quote, rich girl, and I don't want to, you know, dabble with poor Noah. Or is it because I feel unworthy of the love letters, and that's why I'm not willing to believe they're true? Whatever my reason is, I'm missing out on the fact that these letters have been written. They're a done deal. You know, God is extending his arms right now. They're open. He's not moving. It's it's me who will move or not move. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And I think a lot of ministry is like showing people like, hey, have you read these letters? Like, these are the letters. This is what's true about you. And um, I think when I, when I think about me personally, it's like, hey, maybe I don't know like the right letters to read. Or maybe like I struggle to believe the the personal nature of each of these letters that like they're about me specifically. I think, um, you know, I love handwritten notes and I try to do it every once in a while. And, uh, people who've written me handwritten notes, like I just keep them in my drawers and I go back and reread them because 
it feels like a personal expression of uh, the love that people like have for me. And, and I don't know, it means a lot. And so um, it's like, why would I not do the thing, uh, the same thing with scripture, which is uh, at its core so much more valuable than any handwritten letter. Like it is the letter. Um, and sometimes it's like, oh, Jesus is like a one size fits all kind of God. Like, oh, he loves the world and he loves everybody the same, which is like true. But at the same time, I think in that we miss the personal nature of God's pursuit of us and, and how it's like, I, I know we were talking last night about when you took communion and like, you're like, Kevin, this is mm-hmm. like Christ's body broken for you. His blood spilled for you. Like there is the personal nature of it makes it mm-hmm. so much richer. Yeah. And I think this moment just really captures how a lot of us feel about God. Like, you know, why didn't you write me? You know, if you really are who you say you are, why didn't you make an effort to pursue me? And God is saying, I have, I did. My word is there for you. I'm never going to give up. It wasn't over. It still isn't over. You know what I mean? That powerful, irresistible grace idea of like, I did care. I wrote you every day for a year and God doesn't stop after a year. And like I said, he started before we were born. That's kind of like that idea from a quiet place with the, I loved you. I have always loved you. And this kind of parallels the father's workbench a little bit. Like, you know, look at all of the affection that your father had for you that you never even knew about. Like that is crazy. And I think this kind of is a glimpse, you know, a shooting star, if you will, of God's deep affection for me, for his people. Absolutely. I love it. There's so much to say here. I feel like I communicated that really, really poorly, but know that God has written all these letters to you and that every one of them is filled with exciting details about the things that he loves about you and and loves. Hey, where we fail to communicate it, God did it better. Yeah. I'm going to have to trust that the spirit is going to better communicate (laughs) that Lazarus award for me because I think to date, that's maybe the worst award I've communicated. Get me off the stage. Take me to your Mary Magdalene award for a low-key gospel moment. You made too hard on yourself. Um, well, my Mary Magdalene award is the if you're a bird, then I'm a bird scene. Say I'm a bird. No. Don't do it. Say I'm a bird. Stop it. Stop it now. You're a bird. Now say you're a bird too. You're a bird. I'm a bird. I think this is a really, really sweet low-key gospel moment because uh, in it, Noah expresses his love for Allie by telling her that he would become like Allie, like a bird, in a different form if that's what it took to show her how much he loves her. Um, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, but I think uh, we have to ask this. We have to ask this fundamental question of the Gospels of like, why did God become man? Like, why? did Jesus, the word at the beginning, who is with the father, choose to become man? I mean, John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Um, shout out John 1. Shout out John 1. And, and I think it goes along really well with Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. Like Jesus, who was this perfect uh Logos, Jesus, who was in full communion with the Father, who was there at the beginning of the time, chose to come, chose to come into our world and put skin on and show us who God really was. Um, and so we see, like Jesus's love is demonstrated in the fact that He is willing to become like us in a different form, 
to experience the pain and consequences of what it means to be human, uh, what it means to experience the consequences of sin in the world, um, just to demonstrate that like he would go the ultimate length to show us his love. Um, I think another great verse is uh, Philippians 2, 5 uh, through 8, which talks about like, hey, how do we like sacrificially love each other as a church? And it says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus became like a, like us so that we may know him, see him, grasp him, and ultimately fall in love with him. And I think Noah, uh, what he's expressing here is like, man, if, if that's what it took for me to, to transform myself into something entirely different to show you how much I love you, I would do that. Um, and that's why this wins my Mary Magdalene Award. I was honestly so surprised you didn't go Genesis 127. Humans being made in the image of God, like if you're a bird, I'm a bird. That's true. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of different directions you could go here. I think for me, just wanted to focus on like Jesus becoming like us. Genesis uh, 127 is great. And we get to see a picture of how we are made in God's image. Um, but at the same time here, like we are Allie in this scene in the sense that we are human and uh, Jesus becomes like us before we ever go through that sanctification process of becoming like Jesus. What do you got for your Mary Magdalene Award? I'm going with Noah's vision of marriage and kind of his final pervasive push to get Allie. Would you just stay with me? Stay with you? What for? Look at us. We're already fighting. Well, that's what we do. We fight. You tell me when I'm being an arrogant son of a bitch, and I tell you when you're being a pain in the ass, which you are 99% of the time. I'm not afraid to hurt your feelings. They have like a two-second rebound rate, and you're back doing the next pain in the ass thing. So what? So it's not going to be easy. It's going to be really hard. And we're going to have to work at this every day, but I want to do that because I want you. I want all of you forever, you and me, every day. <laughs> so what I see here is that God demands all of us. Uh, and I'm going to go kind of in an interesting direction here. I'm going to Exodus 3 uh, because initially I wanted to do Matthew 16, 24, like whoever would follow me, take up your cross, uh, you know, and like we see that with Jesus and the disciples, but we've used that verse. And so I wanted to go an anecdotal route and take the life of Moses. So Moses is in Egypt and this is the story of the burning bush where God essentially first communicates with Moses and calls him into mission. And later, uh, this will lead to the Mosaic covenant between God and Moses. But I want to start with 316 here. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. End of chapter. Graham, 
God speaks to you that way. And what is your reaction? Well, maybe a little bit of disbelief, uh, maybe a little bit of uh, denial, uh, definitely confusion. <laughs> Moses' life is about to be drastically different, right? Like, gather all of the elders of Israel. What, you want me to consult, like, all of the most important people? You know, I, I don't know all of them. You know, I don't have any special standing with this people. I'm supposed to, like, throw my entire life and reputation on the line here and say that, like, the God of our, you know, ancient fathers is going to bring us out of Egypt. And then I'm supposed to go before the king of all of Egypt and like plead. And then I'm supposed to, you know, expect there to be like this devastating destruction of Egypt. And then we're going to plunder the Egyptian. Like this is just like a huge uh, prophetic moment, you know, like how can Moses even comprehend like the bigness of what's going to be asked of him? And like the point here is like God demands all of us like there's no half in half out for Moses here. Like God is saying like, you're my guy and like, we're going to do this. And it's absolutely a full send. And I want to kind of close this out with some quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Bonhoeffer is um, kind of a famous Christian theologian. He was Lutheran and he was reformed and went down as a martyr in Nazi Germany, World War II, hanged at a concentration camp. But he's kind of famous for his stand against Nazi persecution and he writes about the difference between cheap grace and, and real grace, biblical grace, uh, the grace of Christ, the gospel. This might be long, but I think you'll find it meaningful. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, and the consolation of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. And I think that really speaks eloquently about, you know, what do we really believe grace is? What do we really believe that it means to follow Jesus? Is it is it a blank check to do whatever we want since we're saved by grace? And how, like, God giving us grace through Jesus is also, like, a calling into something greater. Um, I think of, like, uh, shall we, Paul, Paul saying, like, should we go on sitting so that grace would abound more? Like, absolutely not. There, There's a call uh, to submit under his authority and, and live out the life that Jesus lived uh, and following in his footsteps. 
Yeah, and to bring it back to the notebook, I think the idea is like cheap marriage versus costly marriage. And like, does cheap marriage last? Is that real love? Or or is real love like costly and meaningful and about sacrifice and service? And there's going to be give and take and there's going to be compromise and there's going to be tension and like that's how it's going to go, but it's worth doing. And yeah, obviously Bonhoeffer knew that uh, there was called into something more. He was willing to die for this and, you know, he just like, you know, the disciples, we talk about this, like all of them died except John exiled on the island of Patmos, but like they gave up their lives to know Jesus, you know, it cost them everything. And sometimes in, in Western American Christianity where that's unlikely to be the case, we can kind of forget that that grace actually demands all of us. The last thing I'll say is that just as in Noah's biblical view of marriage, we too will struggle with God. Israel literally means the one who wrestles with God. And we get that, you know, weird Jacob wrestling with God story in Genesis 32, where God renames Jacob Israel. And that's why we have the nation of Israel and the people are the Israelites, because it's literally Israel as a nation. God's people is one who wrestles with God. So we can expect there to be this mutual wrestling and this, this, there's room to struggle and to fight and to mm. have our mm. feelings hurt and hurt feelings. And, um, or maybe that's not the best parallel for the biblical side, but in, in this marriage, so to speak, to continue to run with that metaphor, there's going to be a lot of road bumps. And that makes me really thoughtful about who I want to marry. You know, like who do I want to be in this fight with? Cause it's going to be a wrestling match. Absolutely. Um, and I think that actually, not not to steal your thunder, it transitions pretty well into my false prophet award. Yes, yeah, and um, and uh, so my false prophet award uh, is when Noah is at the beginning trying to convince Allie to be with him, and he says, "You just tell me what you want, and I'll be that for you." I'm not usually like this. I'm <laughs> yes, sorry. you are. I could be fun if you want, pensive, uh, smart, <laughs> yeah, superstitious, brave. And uh, I could be light on my feet. I could be whatever you want. You just tell me what you want, and I'll be that for you. I know we referenced this a little bit earlier, um, but I think it's a false prophet award because Noah promises at his core to change who he is if that means that he can get uh, Allie and like be with her ultimately. And I don't think this is actually how God operates. Yes, we have... John 1 and Colossians 1.15 and the evidence that Jesus becomes man and he becomes flesh and enters into the world in order that we may know him better. Um, but he doesn't actually change his character at his core. Like Noah offers to be dumb. He offers to be exciting. He offers to be whatever she needs him to be. And yes, like Jesus fulfills every need, uh, but it's not necessarily always what we want. There's this really great C.S. Lewis quote that I pulled. It says, whether we like it or not, God intends to give us what we need not what we think we want. God shows us who he is, yes, in the person of Jesus, but he doesn't change for us. Um, I know I referenced Greece a little bit earlier, but uh, the end of the movie, like Sandy just goes ahead and becomes like Danny and kind of throws away her morals and, and completely conforms to the image that he wants of her uh, in order that they may be together, which I think is actually a very non-biblical uh, perspective on like how true love happens. Um, the process of becoming like Jesus is, is what we call sanctification. Romans eight twenty nine. for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. First uh, Thessalonians five twenty three. now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved 
blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is not changing. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He has always been the same, and he always will be the same, and he's not going to change for us. Uh, and sometimes that might produce conflict, like the scene we referenced a little bit earlier where Noah and Ali end up fighting with one another and shoving each other back and forth. But if we are Israel, if we are God's chosen people, God's chosen person, we're actually going to engage in a lot of wrestling with him. Uh, wherein it might not always be comfortable, but he's going to tell us what we need to hear. Uh, he's going to be the friend that comfort us, comforts us in a time of need, but also the one who calls us out when we need to be called out. Um, and in the process of sanctification, we become more and more like him through wrestling with him uh, and ultimately submitting to the people that he has called us to be. So does the movie argue you ought to just become whatever you need to become to woo the person you want to date slash marry? I think a little bit. There are very extravagant gestures of love made by Noah, especially at the beginning of this film, the literal jumping on the Ferris wheel. I wonder if Noah, at his core, is changing who he is to be more like Allie. I don't know if the movie entirely argues that, but I think specifically the scene where he says, you know, I'll be whatever you want me to be, like, I feel like that's one of the things that the movie kind of gets wrong. So how do we reconcile that in ministry with 1 Corinthians 9? To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I had become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share some, that I may share with them in its blessings. I think that's tough. I think... Uh... I think of that verse being more centered around finding ways to serve uh, and love other people in like unique ways and being adaptable to situations. Uh, but at the same time, we're like, hey, at my core, am I like compromising who I am as an individual? Like if I'm like, oh, I need to go minister to people who like do drugs, for example, like do I need to go do drugs to like fit in and be a part of that group of people? Like we have to ask ourselves, like the question of am I going there to like be present and be a witness of who God is or am I like falling into becoming more like the people I'm around um, which is kind of a tough nuance but ultimately it's like what God are you serving the God of pleasing other people or like the God of the universe and yeah I think what you're saying is right I think sometimes this idea gets taken out of context like the gospel really ought to stand alone you don't need Jesus plus this to draw somebody in or the gospel plus that you know, like, can you make the gospel attractive in and of itself? Can you relate it? Can you build a bridge without becoming something you're not or making it into something you're not even more dangerously? Yeah, I think what could be lost, and this is where it can be dangerous, is if you're not choosing to call people out and call them into a higher standard. Um, like, yes, I want to earn the right to be heard by the people that I am ministering to, that they will, like, uh, trust that I care about them and, like, believe that I have something that's worth saying. But I'm not going to change what I have to say. I might change the way in which I approach it and earn the right to say it, um, but I'm not changing the message. I'm not changing the gospel um, because like that's false religion right there. Got it. That's well said. That There's so much to talk about that. I'm, I'm sure future podcasts will help us explore that further. I'm giving my false prophet award to, this is kind of a big one. This is maybe the biggest false prophet I've done, honestly. I feel like a lot of mine have been a little nitpicky, but here I'm going with like the very premise of the entire movie. The premise of this movie is that romantic love satisfies. I am no one special, just a common man with common thoughts. I've led a common life. 
There are no monuments dedicated to me, and my name will soon be forgotten. But in one respect, I've succeeded as gloriously as anyone who ever lived. Looking good, Duke. Feeling good. I've loved another with all my heart and soul, and for me, that has always been enough. What's the difference between a godly marriage and an idol? If anything becomes your source of happiness or truth or worth, let's go to Genesis 29 here. Picking up at verse 17, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. This is Jacob talking to Rachel's dad, Laban. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Let me pause right there, Graham. Like, how did you read that growing up? I know you've heard that story. Yeah, I think like we think of Jacob as being very noble for working really hard for Rachel. And you're like, yeah, man, whatever it takes to get the girl like, I don't know. I, I think we celebrate that very much. So listen to the way Tim Keller puts it in Counterfeit Gods. If you get married as Jacob did, putting the weight of all your deepest hopes and longings on the person you're marrying, you are going to crush him or her with your expectations. It'll distort your life and your spouse's life in a hundred ways. No person, not even the best one, can give your soul all it needs. Um, and I think that does kind of capture the way Jacob and Rachel's relationship looks in scripture and really the way Noah and Allie, or at least Noah's kind of uh, d description of he and Allie at the, at the beginning of the movie and then sort of at the end. And I know I'm kind of butting up heads with you here because your Lazarus moment was basically like Noah's, you know, kind of undying affection for Allie and like they curl up on the deathbed in the hospital essentially. And I don't know, how would you sort of reconcile the fact that my false prophet is in a lot of ways your Lazarus. It depends on the way in which we, the, the framework with which we look at um, Allie and Noah's relationship. Like if we are looking at it strictly from a romantic perspective that like we are made complete through another person, I think that's 100% valid for being the false prophet because again, like who is it that completes us? It is God. But if we take the perspective that uh, Noah is Jesus and like Allie is us, then I think we have an entirely different perspective that like God is constantly pursuing us and he is the one that completes us. Um, and like we are empty without him. And so, uh, yeah, I think it just depends on like who you, what can, you know, biblical characters you place on the notebook characters that kind of helps you discern what is false prophet and what is not. I think you and I just have different perspectives on like who fills what role. Yeah. And so when you run with the God Israel, the God us, metaphor bride and bridegroom ephesians 5 that's exactly the kind of worship we want right but then when we do sort of sit here and say like i've loved another with all my heart and soul and for me that's always been enough if we do sort of look for that in a, a human partner yeah we're kind of destined for failure and for devastation anyways give me your jesus award for something a little more hopeful uh my jesus award definitely goes to noah and i think there are a lot of different uh scenes and verses that will help me back this up um, one of the things I think we haven't touched on yet is that uh, Noah goes and he buys a house that he and Allie had talked about buying and he prepares it for her. Like he goes before her, prepares a place for her, and the house really doesn't have much of a meaning to him unless she's there. Um, I think we get a really good picture of Jesus doing this in his father's house in John 14, 1 through 4. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Um, I love that closing line, like, 
Allie knows the place where Noah is. Uh, she knows about the place that he's been preparing for her, and she kind of gets that memo in the newspaper um, and just can't help but go and check it out herself. I think Noah is exemplifying a lot of Jesus' characteristics here uh, when he chooses to kind of go that if you build it, he will come route uh, a la Field of Dreams. Um, and the house, in many ways, I think serves as an Ebenezer, a reminder of what God has done. I like that scene where Noah and Allie are in the dining room, the place where they almost consummated their relationship, and they kind of have that. Wait, did they not? Huh? I thought they did. Did they not? No, they did not when they were in high school. I know she got, like, scared. I almost used that for my uh, Mary Magdalene of, like, we try to convince oh. ourselves sex isn't a big deal, and yet we know it is. But I... Oh, no, no, no. They, I, I don't think they did because Finn, you know, jumps in and stops them before they do. Um, oh, wow. So, Look at you. First time yeah, around yeah. here just literally just schooling me. I read the Wikipedia page, not to okay. flex. But, <laughs> um, but I think that room is a reminder of, like, their love for one another. The room is an Ebenezer, uh, a metaphor of the way in which... Uh, and a physical reminder for the way in which like they have cared for one another. Um, I think Noah demonstrates a patient, selfless love. Um, and yes, there is, is some to be critiqued because he goes and tries to fill the void elsewhere by sleeping with other women, which ultimately doesn't fill that void. Um, and yet, as an old man, he promises to come back and remind Allie that he loves her, even when she forgets this is a relentless pursuit of Jesus for us. Um, Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Uh, Noah continues to fight for Allie, uh, especially when she forgets who she is, who, when she forgets who he is. Um, and I think that's a really biblical Christ-like love, love that is demonstrated here. That's great. I love the house, the Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer, if you will, come thou fount. Uh, mm-hmm. I d- had not thought of the house thing. And really, like, there's a lot to be said there because the restoration of the old with the new, kind of tying into your Revelation 22 from earlier. Like, you know, we used to have this moment in this house or whatever, but now, you know, we live on the other side of the country and things are different. It's like, no, no, no. It's the better, truer, more complete, fulfilled version of the shell original. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he restores the house. Like, he redeems and invites her into it. Like, there's a great parallel there just for the house. Mm-hmm. A new Israel, baby. A new, a new, a new Israel, Jerusalem. a new kingdom, a new Jerusalem, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I love that a lot of times, like, we do the same Jesus award, and you basically do all the groundwork for me, uh, because <laughs> I have also picked Noah. And I am, I feel like this is, like, becoming a coined term for us, relentless pursuit. Like, because we see that with a lot of protagonists whenever they're pursuing a goal. It's like, oh, yo, this is the relentless pursuit. Like, that's what Jesus does sure, for yeah. us. But it's true. And that's why I think stories with characters who really really want things are almost always more interesting and that's how they always teach you to do it in these writing theory books i see the relentless pursuit very clearly with noah and ali i think it would almost really be hard not to um i've got isaiah 46 for this i'm trying to pick something different remember this and stand firm recall it to mind you transgressors remember the former things of old for i am god and there is no other i am god and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And that's kind of what we hear God saying, I am God and I am going to do it. Like, by the way, spoiler alert, I win. Mm -hmm. Like, I am God. I have always been God. I am who I am. I will accomplish my purpose. And so that's kind of the relentless pursuit, trying to take that in a different angle. And then since I've been in Exodus a lot today, this is the unconditional love, part two of my justification for Noah for the Jesus Award. Exodus 16, verses two through four. To context, 
this for you. That context is not a verb, but I just made it a verb. Moses has now, later in his story, led the people you know, through the Red Sea in the desert, fire pillar by night, all these crazy things. God has basically done everything to save the Israelites from Egypt, you know, against all odds. God has, you know, they have no reason to be anything but grateful. God has put the team on his back as he always does. But here we see the Israelites grumbling because they don't have the food that they want. This is verse one of chapter 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Do you hear what Israel's saying there? We would rather have died in Egypt. We were better off being slaves under Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. I hate you, God. I hate this. Why are we out here in the desert? And how does the Lord respond to this very poor behavior on Israel's part? Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And so God, you know, his unconditional love, independent of Israel's merit and their affection and how good they feel about God, God's affection for Israel is unchanged. And he's going to rain bread from heaven down on them. And so that's kind of what we see, that unconditional love. that, Like you talked about, Noah and Allie, like even when Allie leaves and does all of these other things that are against the success of their romance, Noah and Allie's romance. Noah still is steadfast and his love for her is faithful. It's constant. It's unchanging. It's unconditional. So that's really biblical. And then lastly, I'm calling this the a whole new world effect because I think we'll see this in a lot of movies, but introducing Allie to the beauty, excitement, wonder, and thrill of a bigger, more magical, more meaningful life, which is symbolized by the birds, if you remember, and then painting um you know painting is kind of this thing that like Allie does when she feels like most herself but then when she's with uh what's his name lawn um like she doesn't do it anymore and then she kind of realizes one day like i don't paint anymore why don't i paint anymore and then boom she's painting back with noah you know 10 minutes of screen time later and so yeah noah relentless pursuit of Allie, unconditional love of Allie, and then introducing her to a whole new world she you know i love that scene in the you know street early on where he he like lays down under the stoplight and it's like that's your problem you don't do what you want let me like show you a bigger world and i think that already electric personality of Allie takes on a whole new layer and level when she starts just kind of like experiencing like a fuller more filling version of herself and worldview does that make sense yeah i agree she's uh being taught how to play it reminds me of that scene with aslan and the lion the witch in the wardrobe when he and lucy and uh, i think susan might be there are just are bouncing around in the field just like playing with one another and um i think that's one of the things we miss in like in love and being in relationship with jesus is that like he teaches us how to play and to live lightheartedly and not to ignore like the hard things in the world but to like be free um, and like do uh, what we want to in relationship with him. Yeah, John ten ten. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Like God desires abundant life for his people. Teach them how to play. I think it's symbolized and captured really well when he's like, do you want to feed the ducks? And she's like, yes, and starts throwing the, you know, like would she have done that before? Maybe, maybe not. Like she's kind of handcuffed by her parents and the college pursuits and all these activities that have filled her day and essentially deadened her mm-hmm. senses in a lot of ways. So that's it for the awards, and now on to the Q&A, but first an announcement. Need new running shoes? Want to support a local business? Omega Sports sells running shoes and a variety of athletic apparel and equipment both in stores and online at omegasports.com. For online orders of at least $90, they offer free shipping everywhere, and use the redemption code JIM for Jesus and Movies. 
Doing so gives you 10% off your purchase and another 10% towards our production costs. Again, that's omegasports.com, code JIM for a discount and to support us. Now onto our Q&A. Graham, my first question for you is what can we affirm and critique about summer love and the exciting summer fling? I think we can, we can affirm the fact that like it can be real. You can't have real feelings and uh, attachment to some person. You can learn how to live freely. I think what's to be critiqued here is like one – uh, romantic love, like you said, and your false prophet award is not going to be the thing that ultimately fulfills us. It's not going to be the thing that makes us whole. Um, but to be affirmed here is the fact that like, Hey, you can taste something that is real and rich and something that's worth fighting for even outside the summertime. Like, even though you may encounter Jesus, uh, at the summer camp or whatever this, you know, conference or whatever high experience you have like that, the God of the universe is the same God then uh, than he is like when you're down in the valley. What is it that's so alluring about it? I think uh, the idea of adventure. Um, I mean, I feel like summer, these kids aren't in school. They're having a ton of fun with one another. They're constantly playing. Um, I think what's to be affirmed is, is the fact that uh, they're experiencing this new world together and they're not bogged down by the responsibilities or everything else that is calling their attention in life. It's very like the summer for a lot of kids in high school is a time where they don't have to focus on the things they have to achieve and the, the things they have to do. Like they just get to be. Uh, and I think like that's what we get in this movie is the kids who just get to be with one another. What can we affirm and critique about undying loyalty to a spouse? How do we draw the line? How do we distinguish and discern between idolatry and faithfulness in marriage? Uh, I think ultimately it's, hey, does this person complete me? Because uh, if so, like, you had to be asking yourself some serious questions. I think love is is always worth fighting for. Like, you want to fight for love. And if, if it's something that you feel like is genuine, something you feel like is real, um, at the same time, when you believe that it is only that specific love that can complete you, that's where you kind of get into the danger zone. Sadly, we have to stop the discussion there. But before we close, here's a quick shout out to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this discussion possible. Andy Simmons, Ben Dunbar, Bess McLawhorn, Clay Young, Courtney Carlock, Craig Carlock, Graham Hooten, Helen Webster, Jacob Derizio, Janet Hooten, John Pabone, Ken Hooten, Kristen Carlock, and Mike. Thank you so much for your support. Our monthly production schedule is posted on our Instagram at Jesus and Movies. Give us a follow and a like so you can see what movies are up next. If you'd like to support the Jesus and Movies podcast, Patreon is our preferred may of support. For $1 a month, you can become a patron and help pick the movies, submit questions for the Q&A, get shouted out on the podcast, and featured on our Instagram. So if you'd like to join the group, please do so at patreon.com slash Movies or on the free Patreon app. Lastly, if you're listening on Apple, please give us a review and let us know what you think. That helps us to learn more about what's working, what isn't, as well as reach new people. Thank you so much for joining us on the Jesus Movies podcast, and we hope you found some goodness, truth, and beauty. Know that God wrote you every day, and not just for a year, but before the beginning of time itself. And those letters of affection are waiting for you in his word. It wasn't over. It still isn't over. And we'll see you next week.